And so I've got this. Am I driving you nuts with it? Not yet. Good. I watched John Corson teach Revelation years ago on videotape. And uh, some of the students in that class. Um, yeah, it was that long ago. Videotape. Um, uh, counted the number of times that he picked up his tea and talked and, and then set it back down. In a single in a single sermon, he did it 21 times. That's distracting. I'll try to be less distracting. Stephen has been ordained as a deacon along with six others because there has come a complaint from the Greek-speaking Jews that their widows are being neglected in the daily distribution of food. So the apostles appoint seven deacons, and I made the observation that all seven of those men had Greek names, which is pretty smart. If you got Jews that are strictly coming from the Greek-speaking Jews, then you pick seven guys with Greek names to attend to the widows from their community. And um, then we saw how Stephen so profoundly was staggering the leadership of the organized religion of the Jews with his discussions. They, they couldn't defeat him in debate and in conversation, and that enraged them. And so they bring false accusations, and he's brought before the leadership. And in uh, chapter 6 of Acts, verse 8, uh, Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some of what is called the synagogue of freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, Disputing with Stephen, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men, paid them, bribed them, coerced them uh, to say, We have heard him, Stephen, speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. Those were accusations that were brought against Jesus himself. and they stirred up the people, the elders, the leadership, the scribes, the scholars, the lawyers. And they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to bl- speak blasphemous words against this holy place. Note that, okay, the temple and the law, the writings of the Old Testament, mostly the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, but the entirety of the Old Testament can be encapsulated in that also. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth would destroy this place, the temple, and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Specifically, Jesus had said of his body, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up and that was part of the accusation that they had brought before the high priest who is actually present at this sort of trial that's going on with Stephen so this is all familiar ground uh, with them in their trickery Um, and uh, all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at, at him saw his face as the face of an angel what does that mean You know, all we can imply from that is that 
he had a supernatural look about him, something completely unnatural about his appearance. Look, if somebody suddenly takes on angelic appearance, you're probably better off to not try to kill them. I'm just saying. It's a strange thing. It shows you the boldness of these men in their defiance of God. You know, how, how does that look? You know, not lights, not whatever. I'm sitting here and suddenly I begin to glow, radiate light. I would hope you'd recognize that as supernatural. It's not something that, you know, I can, then anyone who would defy, that's really weird that people will, will, not used to, but to this day can see very powerful things happening in front of them in sort of a natural way or a supernatural way and still just brush it off. Really kind of crazy. So verse one of chapter seven, then the high priest said, are these things so? Not what's up with your face? Just concerned about killing Stephen. That's all they're worried about. Don't, don't, don't be surprised by that type of behavior. You've prayed incessantly for your relative. Little things they've said show you that those prayers have been answered and God has spoken to their heart. And you give them the invitation. Why don't you come to church with me? Are you out of your mind? You know, they, they, they react with such vehement behavior. Don't be surprised by that. These guys are literally witnessing face-to-face -face the supernatural work of God, and they brush that aside. So high priest said, are these things so? The accusations that have been made. Is this real? Does this, is this really happen? And he said, brethren and fathers, hey, listen, this is Stephen speaking. And he strikes a very respectful tone. Right. You don't you don't see this guy stand up and spit. You know what I'm saying? He, he, there's no vile reaction here. We see certain things going on in our culture. And I watch those who claim to be Christians reacting in ways that are questionable. You know, Stephen doesn't stop to, you know, confronting them. He just opens both barrels and just goes. In fact, Machine gun style. He just goes through their history and lets them have it. But he starts very respectful. He's trying to put himself on their level to where they will listen. He's trying to win the heart as he starts this. Brethren and fathers, how respectful of him. Listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Before he dwelt in, in Haran. Now listen. From the very beginning, there are some things I want you to notice. Stephen is trying to tear down their misconceptions of God and build their understanding of God up properly. They, they already have this understanding, and he's just trying to get rid of the falsehood and make their relation, their national relationship with God accurate, right? Help them see what they need to see about who they are in God's eyes and who God should be in their eyes. That's all he's trying to do here. Set the record straight. Abraham wasn't in the temple. He was far away. 
center of the Chaldees, Mesopotamia, right? And God appeared to him. Oh, this man, Stephen, says he's going to tear down the temple. What if that happened? What if somehow Stephen tore down the temple? God is still God, and he's still accessible, right? They, they're hung up on this trinket that they've got, this lucky charm in the middle of their country that they hang on to. And he's trying to say to them, no, God had a relationship with our forefathers before we ever even came to this country. That's the thing uh, to focus on. So, continuing verse 3, and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. Now, the command is immediate imperative, right? Get up now and come with me, follow me, go to the place I'm showing you. Uh, then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. He follows God incrementally. Right? That's kind of encouraging. You should be encouraged by that. Right? Because there are very few, very rare people who hear God's call and immediately respond with 100% obedience. And those two people are incredibly annoying. You know, <sighs> love them to pieces. And they are a great example to us. And I do appreciate them. But most of us, right, come along through an incremental beating. There's a process we go through. And that's what we see in every... So, so here, again... He is not just humor for our Bible study, but here he's saying to them very respectfully, Abraham followed our God incrementally, right? There was a process. He's, he's trying to get them to see you are following God in a process. Currently, you're completely disobedient is what he's saying. Incrementally, over time, there will come an obedience. And you're trying to show them the character. It's not even really an Israeli characteristic or, you know, this Jewish religion character. It's human characteristic is what he's saying. God goes to Abraham, brings him after his father passed away, comes into the land in which you now dwell. Verse 5, now God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, now that, that's like you could sort of slip right past that. This, this is the whole crux of the promise with God. You're going to have a child. You're going to have Isaac. And that's not coming. The land isn't his, and he doesn't have a child. Right? Have you ever felt like that? God says to you as you're reading, as you're praying, great things are in store. And you jump up and down in your living room like, hooray, this is wonderful. God has spoken to me. And then nothing for a week, 250 weeks. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, what? what is going on? God hasn't failed. God hasn't failed these people in the past, the present, what's currently going on with Stephen. There's no failure here. God is hard at work on all of their behalf. He's really trying to bring them into the light. 
came out of the land, the Chaldeans dwelt in Iran, and from there, when his father died, moved. God, verse 5, gave him no inheritance land, not even enough to set his foot on. He, he tented, right? He camped there, had no land. Even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give him, give it to him for a possession, the whole land, and to his descendants after him. All that you see is yours. Well, that's a, that's a wonderful promise, but when you don't have anything in your hand, it's well, it's disappointing, is what it is. When you're wanting and needing those things, it's not coming. Really, can stagger you in the circumstances. God spoke to him in this way: his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them four hundred years. Now, um. It's interesting, just note takers in regard to, um, you know, uh, the generation that would not pass away, right? Here we just heard this described as 400 years. In Exodus, we hear that described as four generations. So, you know, not saying that, you know, 1948 to 2048, I'm just saying People misconstrue God's meaning. Is is Jesus Christ returning? And the whole class said, yes, right? So so we're waiting on Christ's return. Uh, Don't be discouraged. Men always misinterpret what they think is correct. So um, they're going to be in the land, be oppressed uh, 400 years. That's Egypt we're referring to. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God, and after that they shall come out and serve me in this place. So he's speaking of the relationship God had with the people that were in Egypt and uh, the fact that he was giving them promise of, I'm going to correct these people who are oppressing you. They're not going to get away with this. And then he also is reminding this nation, hey, God doesn't just let things happen out of his control. You know, that the whole of Israel... Uh, was almost entirely thinking, like, where is God? We have become the slaves of Egypt. We came in here under Joseph. Things were so good. We were welcome. We were blessed. Well, you know, we, we were given land by Pharaoh. It's just a wonderful thing. And the tables turned, and he's just describing this. But their hearts flipped over, too, with, what, like, God has failed was their mindset. And, um, you know, they get corrected and they get released. And then nationally, it's almost like they're saying, see, we never doubted God. (laughs) And Stephen is saying, look, remember, we were in bondage. Remember that we complained. Remember that it was difficult. And God brought us through these things, right? What what are we talking about? These people expect Jesus to show up on a white horse, conquer Rome and deliver them. And when he doesn't, they're like, well, kill him. Because he's not the Messiah. He's useless, is, was their thinking, right? God, God is going to deliver them. So here we are, in the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God, and after that they shall come out and serve me in this place, uh, spoken uh, to Abraham in Canaan, the promised land, before they went into bondage and was fulfilled in the camel. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. So this to say uh, now Stephen is 
broadening the discussion, right? He actually took it very broad in the beginning that God spoke to Abraham when he was still in Mesopotamia. He, I mean, hard as it is for some people to embrace, God chose Abraham before he was Jewish, right? I mean, it's a weird concept, uh, but, you know, then develops everything along the way. And now Stephen is sort of precursory reaching over and saying, uh, watch this, God's about to embrace the Gentiles. Okay. This sign of circumcision yeah, was brought in, but it wasn't originally part of the relationship with God. So before there was even circumcision, there was a relationship with God. That developed later. Right? There are certain practices that we have that developed over time. We're not part of the original relationship with God. So uh, all of Israel marked by this sign of the promissory covenant in verse 9. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph. So now we get into the actual description of that, into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his house. All right, we get that description of how Joseph controlled everything. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan. And in fact, there's evidence now they're finding more and more. Um, it was over the whole world. Okay? This famine was worldwide. Um, really historic. Um, case of the rabbit trail. Um People talk about, you know, doubting the scripture. I creation uh, presentation wants you to come, believe the scripture, hold of the scripture. Sodom and Gomorrah has often been questioned. You know, can't find archaeological evidence of it. Where was it? Where is it? All these different things. Uh, my daughter and son-in-law, Christian and James, and California, the Calvary Chapel that they are now part of. Um, uh, Kathy would be interested in this, Gary. Their pastor is an archaeologist and has done a number of digs, some of them historic. And he's presently right now, we're going to start hearing about it. He's presently right now unearthing Sodom and Gomorrah. Real deal. Found it, verified it near the Dead Sea. It's Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, unquestionably, it's Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, so, so pretty wild stuff uh, when you consider uh, these things. Sometimes... You know, I've given you examples in the past where the critics say mocking things about, you know, King David never existed. That's a myth that was created by the people. You know, he's this sort of cartoon caricature of, you know, what they hoped their greatest hero. Oh, well, then they find, you know, actual uh, shipping records, documentations in Egypt and uh, in uh, what is Iran and other locations uh, documenting the trade that was being done with King David of Israel, you know, so, you know, they make their mockery and say, it's not true. You know, Pontius Pilate, oh, he never existed. They said that for decades of how that was a fictitious character created by Christians to fortify Christianity. Um, you know, Isaiah, the prophet predicts that the Nile Delta is going to dry up. They mock that uh, in their infinite wisdom of, of leftist 
communist dictatorship. Uh, the Egyptians follow the advice of the Russians and build the Aswan Dam and start to destroy the Nile Delta. Not going well enough, so they build the upper Aswan Dam later and completely wipe out the Nile Delta and two Israeli helicopter pilots flying back from Egypt into country in Israel see a big horseshoe shape uh, in the desert. Uh, they call out the scientists. They go out there, start to dig uh, Caesarea Maritime, uh, they find. So the Nile Delta fulfilled what I, Isaiah had said and there at Caesarea Maritime, huge plaque. It's now in a museum. They've got a replica up on the actual dig site um, that refers to Pontius Pilate as having funded and helped build this whole thing. You know, So they mock and they say these things as though they know what is the truth. And then the truth is exposed. I, I really think God holds things in secret and waits until the perfect moment where he can make the greatest foolery of everyone who has criticized him as he reveals these things. So, um, you know, here they're taken into bondage. They have circumcision. They're in Egypt. <clears throat> the famine here referred to as being in, uh, you know, Egypt and Canaan, according to what's said in the Old Testament, <clears throat> it was a worldwide famine, and we have evidence of that. And our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first, so the 12 patriarchs of Israel. I say that incorrectly, 11, right? Because Jacob, you know, Joseph's already in Israel. He sent out our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and hopefully we've all read that, and Joseph's family came, uh, became known to the Pharaoh. Then uh, Joseph sent and called for his father and all his relatives to him, 75 people. And the critics jump in there. Right, because the Old Testament refers to 70 that came into the land and everybody wants to scream and holler. Well, we then later find that this here for Stephen is coming from the, Sept the Septuagint. Okay, so just backstory explanation. You may already know this. Forgive me for repetition, but... Nation of, Israel, or nation of Israel falls into sin. God punishes them, sends them into captivity uh, for 70 years. While they're there, the, the language becomes almost entirely Greek, and the Jews now speak Greek, which pertains to what we're dealing with here. So the, the Greek-speaking Jews ask the Jewish scholars of their day, they're in captivity, to write for them a Greek translation of the Old Testament. 70 of their scholars, Greek word for 70 is Septuagint. So 70 of their scholars render a Greek writing of the Old Testament. And it is known as the Septuagint because of the background. And there are details they add in because of their better knowledge. One of them is that the entirety of Israel, when Abraham's family came into Israel, was 75 because there was Joseph and his sons already in Egypt. Okay, so 70 came, five were there, total number 75. And that's what uh, Stephen is speaking of here. Uh, you really want to just automatically <clears throat> throw out the discussion of the critics. 
because they don't believe and they're looking for any scrap to hang on to. And they grab a hold, right? That term dogmatic, right? Latch on and hang on to something. Uh, they don't have any evidence. They just don't want to believe. So they look for every opportunity to be an unbeliever is what's going on. So this is another one of those fine points that uh, corrects uh, the misperception. So Jacob, verse 15, went down to Egypt and he died. He and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in a tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. So interesting, <clears throat> we're studying in uh, the book of Joshua and Caleb, uh, who was the group of 12. Caleb and Joshua believed the things that the Lord had said. The 10 came back, give a negative report, turn the hearts of millions of people away from the promises of God, wander in the wilderness 40 years, come back to the Jordan River, cross over, and the land is being distributed. And Caleb steps forward and says, hey, There'll be no drawing of straw. I'm paraphrasing. There'll be no drawing of straws for my land because I was promised Hebron. That's mine. God told Moses it's mine. So you got any argument, you could take it up with Moses and God. But that land belongs to me. And there were giants there. And he and his family, not tribe, he and his family went and conquered the giants and took the land. So interesting. That's where this tomb is located. That, that's where all of this history has taken place. Caleb, who is not even an Israelite, right? He's a Kenizzite who has joined himself to Israel and thereby been converted and is a you know Jew by religion with these people. But faith, right? And his land is being mentioned here. And the promise and the fulfillment is being mentioned here. It's remarkable what Stephen is uh, doing. So went down, died. His tomb is there, 17 verse, or 7, verse 17. <clears throat> when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew in multitude in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. And um, there's some debate about the size. Um, the scholars that I've studied as well as I can <clears throat> the critics want to make it a small number, but <clears throat> that's just because they're trying to support Egyptian tradition, not Jewish scripture and our belief and understanding. They put the numbers low, some of them below a million. Some people say that there were maybe two, two and a half million better numbers as we look at how Israel is. You're talking about eight million people. Eight million people and all their cattle and livestock. So when they needed water and Moses struck the rock, this is not a water fountain, right? This is a river that runs out of that rock, who we are told in the New Testament is Jesus, right? Provision. Uh, remember that the next time you hit a wall and you're thinking, how in the world could my circumstances ever recover? Yeah, we just, you know, God does what he wants to. He really does. So, you know, have have your meltdown, right? I guess we're sort of entitled to that because we're human. And when you get over that, when I get over that, remind yourself, remind one another that God is, well, he's God. And he can do what he wants to. He can provide more than we could ever think or imagine. <clears throat> so here... 
we have uh, this statement, uh, but when the time drew uh, near, which God had promised to Abraham, the, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king who did not, uh, till there arose another king who did not know Joseph. So favor's gone, you know, as far as <clears throat> being Hebrews, living in the land of Egypt. This man dwelt, uh, dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. Um, the uh, casting their sons into the Nile River. Um, they, they wanted the children to be slaughtered. And um, boy, it's not hard to uh, just stretch this just a little bit and understand how uh, abortion uh, fits in here and God's whole insight. And, you know, it's, it's important um, that we as church, you know, I'll just throw a couple numbers out there. Rape and incest, right? That's what everybody wants to scream about. These poor young women who are, you know, no, no longer allowed to have abortions. You know, these women who have been raped, these women who have suffered incest, uh, now they're going to be forced to bear these children. Um, you're talking about a number that is so remarkably low, below a single percent, right? A single percent. You know, 1.8 million children aborted in the United States annually. You're talking about a number so small. It's not even a single percentile. Rape and incest pregnancies. Now consider that almost 100% of those women want to have those children. They don't even have a desire for abortion. They want to get away from whatever circumstances they were in. But they have a tremendous heart to see this child come into the world and have life and be given. Oh, well, then they are going to experience such tormentuous you know, existence that they'll become horrible individuals. Well, actually, almost always all of them become wonderful people. You know how hard things cause you to strain yourself and do good things and become good? This is almost always what happens. So they're holding up as the example the very thing that contradicts everything that they're saying. Nearly 100% of abortions in America are birth control. That's what it is. It's birth control. There are so many other... You, you want to plan your family? You, you want to have children when you intend to? There are ways to do that. Right? Irresponsibility, selfish pleasures resulting in mass death. It's a tragic condemnation of our nation. And now to hear states inviting women from other states to come into their state and receive abortions and offering to pay for transportation and procedure. And it's crazy what we're involved in. Absolutely crazy what we're involved in. I want to go another direction with that same discussion as I chase this rabbit trail. The midwives, so um, we couldn't necessarily say doctors, but how about um, physicians' assistants? You know, uh, these women were very skilled at birthing. They understood all the problems, trained 
taught one another, started as young women being taught by older women, learned the process. The midwives that brought the Israeli children into the world were commanded by Pharaoh, kill the children. And they let them live. They gave them life, brought them into the world, gave them to their parents, helped them hide them. And uh, Pharaoh calls them into accountability. <clears throat> I'm not putting words in God's mouth. No, I'm, I'm just going to state it the way it is. They lie bold-faced to Pharaoh. What is going on? These women are having their children, he demands of them. And they say, well, you know, these Jewish girls, they're rugged. We show up. They've already given birth, and they've taken off. It's crazy. We've tried to obey. Bold-faced lie. They're, they're birthing these children and giving them to their families, and they just lie. And the Scripture says, interpret this any way you want to, the Scripture says that God honored those midwives and blessed their houses. Now, before you go too far with blessing their houses, it is... He gave them many children. That's a really cool thing to me. You know, these people that want to get all legalistic about the relationship with God. And, you know, well, you know, you have to obey the authorities that are over you. If they tell me to kill my children, I, I think not, right? If they show up at my doorstep and say, are there Jews living here? Are you hiding Christians in your basement? I hope you would all look each of them in the face and say, absolutely not. <laughs> yes, I'm encouraging you to lie. <clears throat> in the right settings. right? When it comes down, as we're studying in the book of Acts, just before this, to should we obey God or man? When the choice is that clear, right? Actually, what Peter and John say, it's not, it doesn't translate into English well. They say uh, in their original language, we should obey God rather than man. It is, it isn't, they don't even leave it in the optional tone. They make the statement of, as believers, there's only one thing we can do, and that's obey God. You know, killing of children, killing of believers, I, I don't have any question about what I'm supposed to do or not do in that setting. There's only one answer for us, and trust me, if you don't see these circumstances in your own life, your children are going to. Might be your grandchildren. But it's coming. It's coming. And people are going to have to have faith this strong to stand up and repulse this type of behavior. So exposing uh, their children, their babies, so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born, and he was uh, well-pleasing to God. And he brought uh, was brought up in his father's house for three months. Now... He was well-pleasing to God when he was born. The issue of predestination, the issue of um, eternal security, uh, Calvinism versus Armenianism, big arguments in the church. Um, wish I had my dry erase board up here and could 
draw out the illustrations for you, right? We do this thing where God tells us in the scripture that predestination is real. You can't deny it. If you deny it, you're denying the scripture, right? Romans tells us very clearly predestination is real. Before the foundations of the earth, you were predestined. Jesus Christ was predestined. So we were predestined in salvation, okay? The elect versus the non-elect. Well, now let's slow down for just a second and do this one more time. God is speaking to us about these subjects from eternity, okay? Eternity is a difficult concept for the human mind, right? No beginning, no end. You know, I was a child uh, laying out under the stars, and I had been taught this in Sunday school, and just eternity, forever. And it was the first, and my mind just about popped, man. That, That there's no beginning of God. There's no end to God. Like, I just, I can't handle this. I went in, talked to my mother, very urgent about this whole thing. And she was like, yeah, and that's God. And that was fine with me as a child. Like, oh, okay, you know, I'm trying to put this in a human realm was what she was telling me. I wasn't that philosophical as a child, but it settled the argument for me. Oh, okay, God, right, God, it's just way beyond. Well, the thing is that uh, the scripture speaks of God as being uh, the alpha And the Omega and the ever-present one is how that is stated. And in the original language, he's literally saying, I am the beginning and I am the end. All things are the present to me. And, And now the circuits really start to pop. Okay, because God is saying... Like, we're sitting here in the present. God is presently saying to us from the scripture, he is in our ancient past, presently. He is, he is there. It's not that he can see it. He is the beginning. And he's already in our far distant future. In, in the future, I am the Omega. All things are the present to me. All things are the present to me. The past is the present. The future is the present. Okay? So now we put that up on the whiteboard. And you put your line over here where you began. And you put your line over here where you're going to end, whatever day that is. And then you draw a line, a length of that. And we're going to call that salvation. Okay? If you're below the line, you're unsaved. If you're above the line, then you're saved. So just for the easiest sake of argument, and one that I agree with, we'll take all children that are born and we'll put them on the upper side of salvation. So they come into the world, right? And then the age of accountability, wherever you want to draw that, whatever your concept is, they plunge below. Now they're unsaved, okay? I'll just say from the front end, I don't agree with any of this, but I'm just taking us through the class. So now we're below the line. But then that wonderful day, you came to church, a friend talked to you, and you made a decision. You raised your hand, you prayed the prayer, and now you're above the line. You're saved. Isn't that wonderful? And then, you know, after a few years of cynicism, you screw up really bad, and you dive below the line again. Backslide. However deep you want to draw that arch, you know, for some of us, 
Uh, and, and anyway, can't handle the pain and the pressure of this and realize the goodness of God in return. And now we're above the line. Okay. And then we reach that end line and we cross over into eternity above the saved line. Right. And everybody breathes a sigh of relief. We go, oh, that's wonderful. Thank goodness. Well, what if you died anywhere along that way? Okay. I mean, you push that line back. You start messing with things. Well, well, here's the concept, you guys. That curved line up and down is our earthly perception of that. Okay? Because David was a major screw-up. Right? Who would want to have David as a friend? Right? The closer friend you are, the more worried you're going to be about a guy that, as honorable as he is, as amazing and spirit-filled as he is, he slept with one of his closest friend's wife, and then when she was found to be pregnant, he murdered her husband in order to cover up his adultery. Not a friend you want to have. Okay, He repented of it, and God forgave him. So, so did Dave's line... Start above and then dive below and go way below and then way back up or just enough above and cross the line. See, when the Lord is saying before the foundations of the earth, David belongs to me, that's because God is already already in eternity and he can say, Dave is here with me now. It's only the, the, the above and the below the line. That's only our perception of that. Eternal security is real, right? God can say of Judas, that dude was never mine. He did say that. Judas was never. John says of the false teachers, they went out from us because they never were of us. Had they been of us, they never would have departed from us. Okay? So, so here's the thing. You're a screwball, spiritually. I got an email yesterday. I'm just, I won't blab it. But anyway... I'm kidding. We all screw up. That's what I'm trying to say. Right? We do good. We do terrible. And, and we think of ourselves as above the line or below the line. And in the end, it's God's love that carries you all across. Okay? And you do need to abide in Christ. Right? This isn't me writing hall passes for everybody. Just go do what you want. That's not what we're doing. But salvation comes from Jesus Christ, his shed blood at the cross. What the Lord tells every one of us is, I see every one of you in entirety. Before you begin, I know where you end. Before you begin, I know where you end. So look, I just want to encourage you with this, right? Because some of you might leave here thinking, right. I've been trying to be above that line, and in fact, I'm completely below it. <laughs> That's not the message at all, not from me nor the Lord, right? Look, you're sitting in church on a Sunday night. You're above the line. Christ has got you. He loves you. With all your screw-ups intact, he loves Stop screwing up. Please, let us help you stop screwing up. But understand how much he loves you. Okay, this, this predestination, this is a real thing. And, and what happens is, is 
people that think too much of themselves inside Christianity want to pool up into their group and then fight with one another about predestination and who is the elect and who is not the elect. And I'm a Calvinist. No, I'm an Armenian. And who gives a hoot, really? Is Jesus Christ shed blood sufficient for everybody? Yes, it is. Even, even the false teachers, that boggles my mind. Right? Because he tells us that the false teachers uh, are going to be predestined to be in outer darkness. And yet Peter tells us that he paid the price for the false teachers. If they would accept it, right? They're not going to accept it because they're a false teacher. But he paid the price, right? He died for the sins of the whole world. The whole world. There's much of the world that's not going to cash that check, right? But he made the payment. And you'd be a fool to not accept it. Take what he has given. This whole thing. You know, Moses was well-pleasing. Right. Before he was born, he was well-pleasing to God. Why? Because he was going to obey God. He was going to choose to follow the Lord. He was going to make the decision. He was a serious screw-up, too. Right? I mean, on his resume is murder. You know what I'm saying? That's heavy duty. Uh, you know, flipped my lid, smashed the rock a second time. You know, why? Enraged with the people was the summary from God. You know, his anger. You know, I know none of you guys know what that's about, but you know, some people struggle with short temper, anger, break things and shouldn't, you know. So some I hear, I hear that from other churches is what I'm talking about. Pray for them. So um this not and I'll just be clear, not part of my uh shortcomings. Uh we all we all wrestle with anger, but um you know, things don't get destroyed in my house anymore. You know, God, God has delivered me from that many, many uh, moons ago. It's, it's a great blessing to have the peace of the Lord in my life today. So here he was well-pleasing. And, and if I dwelt on that too long for you, I apologize. But I really want us to know uh, predestine, predestination, the issue, and the fact that you are well-pleasing to God. God loves you and, and uh, wants to nurture you. The fact that you're here, again, is an evidence of that, that you are pursuant of the things of God. So uh, he's well-pleasing to God and was brought up in his father's house for three months, a Hebrew home. And when he was set out, uh, you know, in the reed boat pushed into the Nile, which, you know, play on words, they had been told to cast their children into the Nile. So, you know, obeying Pharaoh. <laughs> In word, anyway, so, uh, you know, sometimes loopholes, it's an interesting thing. Uh, so he was uh, set out, uh, as it de declares here, he was set out. Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in word and deeds. Um, you know, if you want to keep that simple, like... Uh, you know, the Egyptians, you know, really smart people, the School of Alexandria, all the different college atmosphere that you could pursue there, um, massive universities, lots of different professors in different areas of study. Um, I built towers. I've shared this before. Um, I built towers for almost 10 years, and uh, we used um, a mathematical uh, calculation 
to determine the length of guy wires uh, that the Egyptians developed, uh, three, four, five triangulation, um, yeah, add the, the distance from the tower and the height of the tower, and um, uh, multiply that, and then the three-part division gives you the, the, the distance. And you say, well, why is that a big deal? Well, you build a tower on a mountain in Maine, and the tower sits at the top, and the first guy wire is right there at the summit with that, but then the second one goes way down over the side of the mountain, right? You have to measure that distance from the base down and then do the calculation to come up with the length of your guy wire because they just send you your guy wire on a giant reel and you have to pull it off and cut it to the proper length. And if you cut it off at the wrong length, your boss is going to lose his mind, right? So anyway, you, you use Egyptian 345 triangulation to do that. Uh, certain archaeological digs in Egypt, uh, they have discovered children's toys that have proper airfoil designed in the wing, and they fly. Before the Wright brothers, Egyptian toys, which leads you to ask the question of if they knew how to make that in a model construction, did they never build it in a full-size construction? There are some questions about the Egyptians and their wisdom. Moses was completed. There's a lot of things. Two books, uh, Emmanuel Velikovsky's uh, Worlds in Collision and Worlds in Upheaval. Strongly recommend those. Uh, they're out of print. Uh, you're going to have to pay some money. I bought uh, Worlds in Upheaval for 47 and Worlds in Collision for 25 on Amazon. Way worth your time uh, to read the number of things there about the ancient world. But particularly Moses he was raised in uh, all of the uh, Egyptian wisdom uh, of his day, and he grew mighty in word and deeds. So his speech was uh, good also as far as his communication capabilities. Verse 23, now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit the brethren, the children of Israel. Um, the way things come into our heart, it's interesting, you know, so, sometimes... You know, people go out with purpose and intention to discover some, you know, mission for their life or what. Other times, you know, light just dawns on marble head and you, you have to you know, follow whatever the Lord is doing. Here, he catches that spark, but unfortunately, he catches it incorrectly in the moment as he uh, has this desire. Seeing one of them, verse 24, suffering wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian, killing him, is what it's implying. Verse 25, for he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. Uh, presumption is a dangerous thing. You know, we want to be careful about that, and uh, especially in the calling of the Lord. I want to hear very clearly uh, from the Lord about what we're supposed to do. Often we hear the calling uh, very accurately, but then how to affect it? Um, you know, it's more like a ready, fire, aim is um, how that goes down. And um, that results in bad things. Um, here, Moses does that very thing. For he supposed his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. The next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them. So he thinks that his ministry is actually going effectively, right? Murdered somebody yesterday. 
today, I'm still clearly a brilliant counselor, so if I could get involved in your problems, is what he's got going on here. Saying, man, your brethren, why do you wrong one another? He probably, he probably had a really super spiritual tone to his voice that annoyed everyone who was listening. You know, can't we just pray about this? Isn't that, you know, and you just want to hurt somebody. Verse 27, but he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Um, playground, uh, you know, uh, interpretation, you're not the boss of me is what he's saying. Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Oh, hey, cat's out of the bag. Hide him in the sand. Uh, you you read the scripture and it literally says, as Moses goes to kill this Egyptian, it literally says he looked this way and that. There's going to at least be a and up there, right? He doesn't even do that. He's looking on an earthly plane only. He looks this way and that kills the Egyptian. And this uh, Israelite knows uh, you murdered an Egyptian yesterday. Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons, um, what becomes known as the backside of the wilderness. And, um, you know, there's uh, some pun in there that's usually very poignant for most of us. Moses uh, dies to his flesh out there. He uh, goes in the arrogance of his education and his upbringing. Hebrew and Egyptian upbringing, and by the time we find him again, he's stammering and stuttering and tending sheep is what he's doing. He's, he's lost all of the bravado, and he's very, very humbled in the experience. Verse 30, and when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have Come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. We'll stop there, but I'll give us a little bit of insight and summary from 23 down to 34 with Moses, because, you know, we kind of get launched into that whole uh, visual and imagery and lose track of the fact that Stephen's talking to the religious leadership. And the summary is, you guys don't know what you're doing, just like Moses doesn't know what he's doing. He knows God, but he doesn't know God. He's all over the map. And, uh, you know, these are the guys who, even when they're going the wrong direction, just keep a stiff, stiff upper lip and pretend you know where your destination is, right? That's, that's what they're doing. They don't have any leadership they just have this whole persona that they've put out. And it's actually incredibly wicked, right? We want to um, 
really make sure that we're not reading about these failures and thinking that it's relegated to them because it is us. This, this is, these failures are human nature. Um, the places where I see them all over the place, I see them in business. I see this type of failure in ministry. I see it in all types of places. The place where it's most poignant to me is in my own life and in my own home and in my own family. It, it takes humility. It takes humility. And, um, you know, the biggest way that I recognize humility in my own life is that I recognize my own narcissism. I just, I am, I'm way hung up on me and all that I like, you know, my, I drive my family crazy about the temperature in our house. Right. I literally, I literally, she's not part of my family. <laughs> Physically. Spiritually, she's my sister for sure. Um, you just know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I, um, anywhere in my house, I, in just a few seconds, I'll be like, the back door's open. You know, and people are like, no, and we go, and the back door's open, which has twofold problem. One, all of this cold air that I had developed out of my wallet is flowing out the back door, and the cat is outdoors too, right? You know, just that sense of things. You know, people, I don't even know, they turn on the oven. And right now, this heat, they turn on the oven, which I really appreciate. When the oven needs to be on, right? The lasagna was amazing. You know, I just, I appreciate that. But you need to turn the fan on over the oven to draw the heat out, right? I'm sitting there working and like, whoa, it's got to be like 76 degrees in this house. These guys don't notice the fluctuation from 68 to 82 don't even notice it. I, I, I noticed like two degrees. Literally. In this church, in my house, you know, different things. And I can tell that the window is open over there. You know, that the oven, that the that smells like the oven heat. Have we turned on the fan? You know, I just, these, I, I'm hung up on me is what I'm trying to illustrate. Right? You know, I, I, you know, you made my coffee. You know, thank you very much as I drive away. Take the first sip. And you made it wrong. God bless you. You know what I'm saying? I just like, why? You know, consistency should be a thing that people can dial on. Why? You know what I'm saying? Well, because when I roll up here and ask for my coffee a certain way, I want it to be exactly like that. Yeah. These things that I have to, and it isn't torturous. It's just. I got to recognize how incredibly arrogant and self-centered these things are. You know, and long ago, God started showing me this because those are the small things, little, 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 tiny things. If I'm doing that in the microscopic, like where else am I doing that where I'm plunging a knife through somebody spiritually, verbally, you know, emotionally, without thought, Moses looking this way and that way, and then doing something 
that doesn't have anything to do with looking this way, you know, with hearing from God. You know, so as we see this religious organization that is about to murder Stephen, and we hear these summaries and my analysis, and we sometimes are left thinking, like, what? A bunch of murderous, lying jerks. <laughs> Turn the mirror around. Just just pay attention, right? You don't you don't even have to improve dramatically. Right? If we just improve somewhat, we will be such a blessing to so many people around us. We'll have a much bigger ministry if we'll just be a little bit more like Christ. You know, and if we can do that daily, incrementally move that marker with him. Crucify the flesh, die to ourselves, more like Jesus, less like ourselves. Every day, you know, never move the marker back, right? If he's gained ground, look, you know, how how, how disheartening to, I know you've all done work like that, where you go like all this distance and then realize, oh man, I'm, I'm actually way back here. <laughs> I haven't accomplished anything. Spiritually, it's it's a really dangerous thing because we very easily go, eh, well, oh well, whatever. It should be as concerning if we've put a tremendous amount of effort into something and then it's failing. You know, if you, if you get that upset about you know the job you're doing, the care you're giving, the you know meal you're preparing, whatever it might be that you could use as an illustration then surely we should be more concerned about the spiritual. And, and uh, you know, this, uh, as much as Stephen is saying, this is Moses, and he, you know, he's indirectly saying to them, do you see Moses in your behavior? <laughs> I have to look at that and go, well, do I see Moses in my behavior? And without hesitation, the answer is yes. Yes. It's an unfortunate thing. The beautiful thing is, uh, Stephen is one who's gone past all of that, filled with the Spirit, speaking this to these people. And honestly, this is not Stephen with his judgmental verbal hammer, right, bludgeoning them. This is Stephen with the softest invitation, inviting them to come over to this experience, right, to, to step across that line and have that fulfillment in Christ. And that's what's happening for us this evening is the Lord is beckoning to every one of us to, you know, come experience the fulfillment that I have. you. Do you recognize yourself here anywhere as a screw-up? No, you know, you're so thick-skinned that you wouldn't ever admit that. Uh, if we will surrender, the fulfillment, the fulfillment that comes, and that is just astonishing on every level. And I'll tell you what, God is going to be right behind you going, oh, finally, <laughs> now we can move. Now we can get some things done when we are in proper response, right? When when Moses is stabbing people, you know, or however he kills you, it's really useless. You know, God isn't like, well, you know, door greeter is out for you. Um, you know, you're like a, we'll find a janitor. Would you like to be a janitor? You know, I just, how about you go tend sheep, you know? Literal sheep, because I can't even put you with my people, because who knows how that's going to turn out, right? There might be a stack of bodies 
if you know if Moses is the pastor at this point, you know, this statement that's made is actually true. You know, are you going to judge me also? You're going to kill me like you did the Egyptian? You know, if this is how you act with the world, how are you going to act with the body of Christ? How are you going to you know feed my sheep, stab my sheep? Probably not a good ministry, right? That we have to be changed. And when we do, when we come to that humble point, God can then usher us into his will. Make sense? Amen. Well, that's the time we have for this evening. Verse 34. We'll pick up at 35, hopefully, next week, God willing. So let's stand and we'll pray. Father God, we are grateful for your love and your graciousness and the way you speak to us. Help us, Lord, help us with obedience. We need to hear from you. We need your guidance. We need your spirit. Without any of that, we can't surrender. We can't be obedient. Lord, fill us, overflow us. Accomplish your will in us and through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.